This is an ABC podcast. Hello from NARM. This is Life Matters. I'm Beverly Wang. And ah, the weight of parental expectations. How have they played out in your life? Whether those expectations have been high, low, or indifferent, I would love to know how you've responded to them and how they've shaped you. And in the two hard basket, when does a favor become a burden? Let's talk. So I can't remember a time in my childhood where I didn't carry the embedded understanding that one day I would attend university. And really, it's only in recent years, I suspect due to my advanced age, that my dear mother has stopped asking when I'm going to go and get a PhD. What can I say? immigrant family, high parental expectations when it comes to education. And I tell you what, even my physical reaction to recalling the PhD question is uh, slightly uh, clenched fists and wondering, when is it ever going to be enough? As aware as I am of how this expectation has psychologically marked me, I'm also understand where it comes from. And I also see where I have both conformed to those expectations and where I have rebelled against them. I wonder if you can relate. I'm inviting you to join me and my guest as we walk straight into the depths of dealing with parental expectations, high, low, indifferent, and talking about how they've helped shape us into who we are. You know, my example was about education, but expectations could be around anything family, gender roles, even your appearance and your abilities. So if you had parents who pushed you, how has that worked out for you? Or if you feel like you lacked encouragement, how did that affect you? Also, if you're a parent, how have your own experiences with parental expectations influenced the way you express those expectations to the next generation? A big welcome to our guest, broadcaster, DJ, and all-around overachiever, Linda Mariano. (laughs) (laughs) ABC listeners know Linda as a familiar and longtime voice of Triple J. Linda's new book is a memoir called Love Language, which, which covers, among many topics, how her experience growing up with a strict mom and a laid back dad have shaped who she is today. You heard her laugh just then. Hi, <laughs> yes, Linda. I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. It was the, um, yeah, it's what happens with a little bit of overachieving and high expectations. Yeah, go, that's they right. They kind of go hand in hand. Don't they? Don't they? So congratulations on the book. Let's dive in. Tell me a little bit about your life growing up. How did your mom and dad's parent- parenting styles differ? We had a hint there, but maybe you could flesh that out a little bit. Yeah, I think like... My mum definitely was on the stricter side of things and I think that was loaded through the two sides. One was that in Chinese culture there's just so much um, importance and loyalty towards your family and serving your family in a way that is kind of lifelong respect. So you respect your elders, you serve your elders, you look after everyone in the family, you work hard, you're not lazy, you're clean, you're, you know, it's you're well-groomed. It's like kind of everything ticking the boxes and and that's kind of what makes a successful human almost in like my mum's head. Like my mum's a very kind of black and white person in some ways. But then also being, as you were saying before, like that sort of immigrant story of coming to a new country. So she came 
to Australia from Malaysia when she was 18 and it kind of gave her that ferocity to say, I'm here to make a better life for myself. Yep. And if I start a family here, I want my son and my daughter to have all of the opportunities and to use them because I didn't have them before. So if they get an education, I want them to use it in the brightest way possible. Mm -hmm. They're not going to slack off. They're going to really dedicate themselves to their schoolwork. So there was that side of things. And then from my dad's side, he was definitely more of the cuddly teddy bear laid back dad. Um, But, you know, he also came from an Italian family and that Italian family's all here. And so there was that symmetry like my mum's Chinese side where there was a lot of loyalty and respect and this idea of serving your family your whole life Um, and kind of that expectation of, I remember the expectation between doing well in school and also ticking that box in terms of marriage, children, that kind of norm Mm. to get through. Linda, hearing you tick off those lists, I feel like Mm. I could relate a lot to those many, (laughs) many expectations. It's, It's a lot. At what point in your life, how early of an age did you kind of clue in to that order of things and those expectations? I think as kids, we, and I say this as an adult, thinking about the way that I felt as a child, I can feel the ways that I was sponging up those expectations and feeling very much like that was very normal. Like I remember feeling really guilty if I, say, didn't help my mum with the washing because that for me would mean that I wasn't a good enough child or something, if I wanted to play instead. And I look back on that now and I go, where did that guilt come from? Oh, I think it was because I just really wanted to be a good kid all the time. And I was told, you know, if you do your chores, you're a good kid. If you learn your timetables after going to school, then you're you're a good little girl. Um, And I remember even, you know, when I was in primary school doing, there was like a selective high school test to get into an academic high school. And I even remember this sort of expectation from both sides of my family in sort of a jovial way, like, oh, well, you're going to make it to the girls' academic high school because all of my cousins before me had made it to those, you know, so-called, like, better schools. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling a real sense of relief when I actually did do well in those exams through primary school and then into high school. Um, And it wasn't like a happiness in, oh, wow, I've done well in a test. It was a relief of, oh, my God, I'm so glad I'm not, I'm not uh, bad yeah. Uh, in, in the eyes of these people. When, you know, talking about guilt and that sense of relief, it's really, really, I really resonate with that, Linda. So that leads me to my next question. You know, when you met those expectations, how were you uh, received by your parents uh, and I guess your mom? And when you didn't quite meet those expectations, how did that play out in terms of um, the response to you? Um. So when I would, when I would, let's say, meet 
the expectations. Or exceed, or, come on. Exceed, exceed. Yeah, of course, or, or, or always make exceed. Them, or, always exceed, yeah. always exceed and <laughs> succeed, yeah. even when you're a child. Um, I, I do, I remember there was like, if there was a bar that was set for what, you know, Linda and, you know, my brother would kind of achieve, if we kept hitting that bar, it was like the the sense of pride was was in the house of, Oh yes, I've got a I've got a smart child. My child is smart, and you know I kind of feel like that was the air that we were presented to other kids. Or when I'd get my school report card, and they'd go to parent teacher nights, or we'd be meeting up with other friends, uh, like family friends who had kids. I, you know, you absorb the way that your parents sort of value you mm-hmm. um, in that sense. So I I think I had a very strong sense that if I kept hitting that bar that I would keep being kind of portrayed as Linda's not lazy, she works hard, you know, she does the chore, she dust busts the floor when I ask her to, like it was all of those sorts of things. And then if I, on the on the flip side of that, if I didn't do as well, that was when the the guilt came in. And that was, to be honest, where, and this is this is where I think it kind of flips a bit too far is that that's where for me as a kid I think that's where the deception came in or me wanting to hide if I thought I didn't do well enough so I remember I would bring home I'd be terrified when I get school reports because you know something would say that I got you know 48 out of 50 instead of 50 or you we used to do this thing in our primary school where you would say whether you were the they would always award the number one student at the end of the year. Mm. And I remember I would get it like every year. And then I think there was one year in like year five where I didn't get it. And I like hid that from my parents because I just, I didn't, I didn't want them to know. Jeez, you know, looking back, thinking about that kid hiding, I mean, do you feel so much compassion for her? I do actually. I think through writing this book, it made me really interrogate the scenes, because I can remember those things quite vividly, the feeling of feeling guilty, the feeling of wanting to do really well. But I think now I I understand the complexity of it in a way where it's not like, oh, that was really mean and I wished that they hadn't, that I didn't feel that expectation, but I can kind of understand like where it came from. And I feel a lot of compassion as well for my mum mm-hmm. and for my dad of, they came here with, you know, nothing. And, and that's why they felt this, that, that there was such a sense of like tension to do well, because they didn't want, you know, me to, to be in a position like what my mum was when she was, you know, growing up where she didn't have anything and she had way less opportunities. So there's like, I feel like a lot of compassion for all the people in the household, if that makes sense. Absolutely, it does. Yeah. Um, let's take a call now, Linda. Ella has called in from Melbourne. Welcome to Life Matters, Ella. What's your story or reflection about um, parental expectations? Hi, Beverly. Oh, well, firstly, I relate to some of the pressures you were under. They work <laughs> quite differently in my life. And actually, I'm from a kind of Anglo settler Australian background. My parents were both very quirky, very fun, incredibly supportive and loving. Um, But especially in my mum's part and also my maternal grandma who played a part in my care, a lot of that funness, creativity and stuff was directed towards making learning fun, learning and 
you know, creative play and acquirements and being good at music and kind of being a renaissance woman. And I think they were so good at being inspiring and kind of very active encouragement, I'm going to call it, that I really internalized that. And I think I became so obsessed with achieving, um, whether it was in, you know, creative writing or whether it's achieving through study, um, that it kind of ran out of their control and my mum started to panic and be like, I've created a monster. Why doesn't she date anybody? Why doesn't she want to go anywhere? Why does she just want to like read and write instead of actually live? And so it's it's kind of funny because it's been a success story in a lot of ways in yeah. terms of academic achievement. Um, but it was kind of funny because I just it became almost a religion to me that – well, I've got an evening, of course I'll read and improve myself and work or try to write something clever or, you know, do extra study. Um, so, Ella, yeah. let me ask you a question at this point because Linda do was I saying... Do I have a PhD? Do you have... Okay, yeah, let me ask you that question. Do you have a PhD? I have a PhD. Okay. Of course I have a bloody PhD. <laughs> well, how many PhDs do you have, Ella? That's when are you going to get your one. second one? When That's... I move to Germany, I'll get a few more. Okay, okay, okay good. <laughs> let me know how that goes. Um, that makes me think about uh, what Linda was saying about achieving those goals or not achieving those goals and then feeling a sense of guilt. Could you relate to that as well? Oh, my goodness, absolutely. And I think the one thing that I really notice is um, I have always had a bit of a cheerful, goody-two-shoes quality to me. I mean, I'm moody like anyone, but always like, yay, I'll do it, sure. Um, And I think just kind of looking back, I think I said yes to everything because I can be enthusiastic about anything, but I didn't form plans for the things that might, you know, make me happy or make me feel like I was making the best use of what I can do and maybe be more at the coal face of change in some way. So look at the pressures I'm putting on myself now. Yeah. Change the world. Wow. <laughs> the world. It's uh, okay to take a day off once in a while. Um, let me ask you this thing. as a question <laughs> to finish. If yes. you have plans to, you know, have children at some point, does it make you reflect on how you want to express expectations to them? So, believe it or not, I actually managed to have one. Mm-hmm. And it is all in my head all the time. And all my habits of overthinking create a lot of anxiety about that because I think, you know, am I am I doing enough? Should she know her letters by now or what? You know, I, I can hear my mum's competitive parenting come in. And I, I think I've been kind of impressed that I'm more reacting against that than in leaning into that. So, I'm sort of relieved. But then I'm like, oh. Don't know, I don't know how this script goes because yeah. I haven't lived it. Well, parenting, there's uh, unfortunately, there's no guidebook to parenting, but good luck to you. And I think thinking about it is is the first step, being conscious about it. Thank you so much for calling in, Ellen, sharing oh, thank you. your story. If you want to call in and, and chat with Linda and Linda Mariano and myself about uh, parental expectations, the number is one three hundred double two double five seven six. Linda, what did you think of all of the jumble of feelings and pressures that we heard Emma talking about in that call? I found it really relatable when she was like, you know, in a lot of ways, it's a success story mm-hmm. because there are good things that come out of it. Like I probably, I wouldn't be here talking to you if I hadn't felt that 
you know, that drive to be motivated and say yes to things and go to uni and study really hard and want to make friends. And, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a line that we cross sometimes. And when you don't cross the line, the stuff that you get out of it can be really positive where you get to form close bonds, you get to work on a career that you find really fulfilling, which is what I did and what it sounds like the caller did as well. But I really related to when she said she realised that she, through the process of saying yes to everything, mm-hmm. you kind of end up saying no to yourself mm. in some ways. Mm. Because I've, I don't know if she would relate to this as well, but I, what I was hearing from that is something that I think about quite often now, which is that because I've spent so many years being such a yes person, and someone offering me something and me saying, yes, I can do that. I'd love to do that. You'd be disappointed if I said no to that, that I find it hard to discern the thing that's actually going to make me happy as opposed to what my answer is going to be to make you happy. Do you still find yourself measuring how you respond to things from that other perspective? Absolutely. I think it's. I think I, I'm in the process of unlearning it now, and I'm slowly getting better at it. I can feel myself slowly getting better at it, in a very real sense. When I get, say, offers for certain work or to do certain things, or even in a social sense, do you want to do this thing on the weekend? And I would normally go, "Oh my god, they're going to be so disappointed if I don't go to this dumb thing." And then you go, "Actually, no one gives." A anything yes. if you turn up to their drinks or not. So what do you actually want to do? Make your decision based on you, not on what the consequences are to other people. But it's certainly it's certainly a work in progress. Mm. Like I'm really I I do I don't think I'll ever stop thinking about how someone else feels. Yeah. I think and I don't think I want to. I, I wanna keep being considerate in a sense. Sometimes when I think about saying no, I think about how relieved I will feel when I know that mm. whatever thing I said no to is happening and I'm not there. And I find that's, that's like a little spark of joy that yeah. I get when I think about that. I've got a texter who writes in and says, OMG, Linda is speaking my life. The year I came ninth out of 160 in science instead of first or occasionally second in all caps, every subject, as I usually did, my mother just looked at me crestfallen and asked, what happened? That happened to be the very year my parents separated. That is a, a lot going on. Wow. And if anybody's read your book, Linda, which has come out soon, which recently came out, we know that that's a fairly similar story that you, you can resonate with because uh, you were in the final year of high school, weren't you, when your parents were splitting up and you had all this weight of expectations of studying hard and doing well and also the expectation of kind of maintaining a happy front, right? That is exactly it. Wow, did I just text into this show? <laughs> I don't know, Linda, did you? <laughs> I think I've just texted while you were talking. Um, that was so funny. It was. It was like if I didn't do quite well enough, but it was particularly like in the book I talk about the feeling of expectation and then simultaneously that was going on as my parents' marriage was breaking down in my final year of high school and then you know, they they divorced when I first started going to university. And 
Oh, that was just it was a it was a it was a tumultuous time because I felt like I was then wrestling with um, this feeling that my family had almost shattered. So my family that had ticked this box that I thought I would have to tick as an adult, like, yes, my parents are together and they've stayed together. Then all of a sudden when my parents got divorced, I was like, well, they didn't tick the box. Why do I need to tick any? And I think I felt a real sense of rebellion in there. Betrayal, perhaps? Yeah, betrayal. Yeah. Absolutely betrayal. Let's take a call from Shelley in Sydney. Shelley, welcome to Life Matters. We're talking about parental expectations. What was it like for you growing up? Well, I, I had absolutely no expectations from my parents about what I would do. Um, I, w- I grew up in a small country town. When I was in year 10, I thought I might get a job in the chemist or get a job in the bank. And then in year 11, I decided I was going to drop out of high school. My parents said that was fine as long as I got a job and did something. Um, So fast forward, I guess, 50 years. I retired last year, um, but I set my own expectations and I went to university. I did my HSC at TAFE, went to university, um, embarked on an academic career Uh, I became a professor, and when I retired last year, I was deputy vice-chancellor in a university. So not the kind of um, outcome that one would have expected from no parental expectations. And Shelley, just to probe that idea of no parental expectations, what did that look like? Was it kind of, you're free to go and do what you want and and we're not going to pressure you, or it was kind of like, we don't care? What did that actually look and sound like? Oh, it was the former. It okay. wasn't that they didn't care. It was a very loving family, but there just uh, there just were no expectations about what I might do other than the expectation I would get married and have children. Mm. Wow. And did you end up getting married and having children? Did I you? Did. I did. Oh, you did. <laughs> I did, yes. So now, Shelley, uh, you have you have children. How How have you expressed expectations to your own children? Well, I, I think it's a very fine line. Um, I'm not sure if my parents had been overbearing and insisted that I did X or Y. I think I probably would have rebelled against that. The fact that I had the freedom to choose my own path, my own course in life, um, was a great benefit to me. And that's what I tried to do with my, my daughter and with my grandchildren now, making sure that they have the opportunities Um, but you have to create the opportunities to make it possible for them to choose their own life course. Shelley, thank you so much for calling in. What an interesting story. If you want to call in and share your story of parental expectations, high, low, indifferent, free, overbearing, you know, all of those kinds, all those flavors. We've been talking about education, but obviously there is expectation to get married, have a family, all of those things. Really interesting text here, Linda. Someone says, Mm. I left studying law to actually run away to join the circus. My family was not happy. I've had an amazingly fulfilling career as an acrobat. My dad finally came around after six years. We have some incredibly varied listeners here. That's amazing. A real-life circus acrobat. Um, wow. <laughs> Linda, thinking about, you know, different expectations, you know, reading your book and reading about those Italian family dinners, tight-knit family dinners, you know, three nights a week you wrote, and the kind of um, very precise hierarchy where everybody knew where what their jobs were and what they were supposed to do, 
those are expectations very much, you know, falling along the gender gender binary. Mm-hmm. You know, how did you internalize that, and and how are you processing that now now as a grown up? You know, that's such a good question because when I was growing up, and it and it is this very vibrant scene in the book that I paint of the Italian family dinners, we're at my nonna nonno's house, so we're at the grandparents' house and there's this full hierarchy where everybody has the different roles. If you're one of the aunties, you do this at the kitchen bench. If you're a child, you're allowed to play here. If you're one of the men, you sit at the table and you don't get up. You are served. And when you want seconds, your wife, because of course you have one, gets up and you know, gets you your seconds. And and that's the way it is. And in fact, what really should happen is that you should never have to ask because one of those amazing women servers will be constantly scanning your room. You're a mind reader, apparently. You're a mind reader. You're there. You're, You're anticipating what people's needs are. And I definitely, you know, soaked that up as a kid, um, soaked that up as a young woman, soaked that up as, uh, a woman that w- then was going into relationships. Um, but at the same time, there was a push-pull because I've always been such a strong, <laughs> you know, a strong, like, talk about equality, heavy feminist. Like, I really, really, really care about pushing those gender roles aside. And so there's been a real rebellion in me to shoot dirty looks if I'm (laughs) with a guy and he's not going to get up and help clear the dishes after we have dinner. And it's almost like I've got a chip on my shoulder because I've seen the way that it runs when those gender roles are so ingrained. And I, and as as beautiful as I see it, because I'm like, oh, look at this romantic old school Italian scene. There's this very modern Linda in me that goes, now the men need to get up. You know, (laughs) Well, really, really staunch. It makes me think even, you know, it sounds like in that scenario, the men have it best. But it also sounds very constraining in many ways that if you what if you were to get up and and help in the dishes, what what kind of, you know, eyebrows would be raised? Everybody is still constrained despite, you know, the lack of responsibility in that scenario. Isn't it? Isn't that the case? Yeah. Yeah. And I and, you know, I saw it change over the years. So now when we have family, oh, excuse me, my voice just went crazy. Now when we have family get togethers, you know, my brother, my boyfriend, my dad will help fry the schnitzel. One uncle will help, help, you know, do the dishes. So that thing is slowly shifting, but it's still that thing of, oh, well, isn't he a good man that's helping rinse the plates before they go in the dishwasher, just like you, Linda? Wow. And I'm like, well, no, that's that's what my boyfriend should be doing. You know, we're the same person. Yes, yes. We could do <laughs> yeah. a whole other talk back about those kinds of expectations. But let's uh, stick to parental expectations yeah. for this session. Yep. Linda Mariano is my guest. Her new memoir is called Love Language, and it's one of the themes that she explores in that book. Uh, Jan in New South Wales, welcome. Welcome to Life Matters. Tell us about your family parental expectations growing up and the impact they've had had on your life. Um, well, they certainly had an impact. Um, so I'm a Western Suburbs girl and failed my HSC. Um, you know, doing all what we used to do. I'm 65. But my father was a taxi driver and a very stoic Greek son of a Greek migrant and um, so the conversation was always that I would get a degree, a degree, 
um, any degree, just a degree. Mm-hmm. So anyway... Um, and why was that, Jan? Why was that so important? Look, I don't think he knew. I actually don't really know if he knew. I think he just thought the word meant something A step to him. up somehow, access, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like he never really explained it. Um, and then Goff put money in the system, so I was really lucky. I got money to go to the only university I qualified for, and I got a degree. Um, and then shocker horror, I got a diploma, and then shocker horror, I got a master's, and he couldn't understand. He just kept going. Yeah, and he was like, no, no, none of that's necessary. Like, I just meant a degree. <laughs> And so you'd gone too far. And then um, I got a PhD, which took 11 years to get while I was working, which meant, you know, I wasn't the brightest at it. And um, But I got it, and that was like a switch that was just too far. And um, But when I realised what was happening, because I didn't understand, um, while trying to meet his expectations, was that I bought him Peter Carey's Illywacker, which is this slab of a book, because it won a prize for Christmas. And he looked at it and he said to me, I don't read. And, um, I mean, he could read, but he didn't read. No, not not a, like a, a sit-down reader, a reader of books. Yes, a reader. No. So, Jen, that's and, so um, fascinating. So you... You met that expectation that was drummed into you, and when you but when you exceeded it, it almost turned into an area of disappointment or befuddlement. What do you what do you attribute that to? That too much education? There was some kind of balance you were supposed to understand of how much education was enough as compared to too much. Um, I think it's very um, waspish. You know, like they're Greeks. They come out at the turn of the century. They had the milk bars, and the kids had to be educated. And so, like, there's rules of engagement with society and these were the rules and just stick to whatever we think you you know qualify as having met the rule Mm. yeah so interesting i I sort of didn't want to ring up because i was listening to the other callers and i'm like it is actually quite traumatic to go through it's so complex isn't it and these things they stay with us they really they really i'm 65 for god's (laughs) sake and i'm like i'm in a paddock in the bush and i'm like don't, don't ring Beverly. She Please, no, always it. ring Beverly. Yes. <laughs> anyway, thanks. That's amazing. Really appreciate your call, Janice. Let's go straight to Janice in, uh, in New South Wales, I believe. Janice, welcome to Life Matters. Let's hear about your story of parental expectations. Good morning, Beverly. I want to talk about the situation that a child is in when one parent is ambitious for you, but the other parent is deliberately obstructive. So my parents probably should have divorced two years after they were married, but they stayed together until they died. My mother had left school when she was 12, and their marriage happened during a period when men really expected to be the leaders in the family and the one with the education and the good job. But my mother was the talented one and she was working her way up through the workforce. She took pride in my achievements at school, but we lived in housing commission and were, you know, we lived a very basic, often very uncomfortable existence. She was so busy pursuing what she wanted and never actually got that I didn't get practical support from her, but I knew the ambition was there and I knew achievements were approved of. But my dad was the opposite. So I would have to turn off the light before he came home because he would know I was studying. So it was, 
he was resisting her, but through me. Wow, that sounds like a very tough situation. It's a really uncomfortable situation. It hasn't held me back. I have pursued my education post-school and I'm fine. But I just think it's interesting, you know, not all parents share the same ambition for their children. And sometimes the, the dynamic within the parental relationship is played out through the children. Mm. That's really interesting, Janice. Thank you so much for calling in. Linda, I'm going to turn to you because it makes me think about what you write about in your book. You know, you had the strict mom, you had the the laid-back dad. um, And did they have different ambitions for you? Did you feel any of that dynamic playing out that the caller just described via, you know, the kids in the family? Well, my one was just hearing that there was there, it was it existed on such a spectrum mm. like mine was not as extreme as that i hear that and you know when you asked me do i feel compassion for myself as a child and i go yeah i re- like i do really feel for that girl that felt guilty and felt like she was disappointing um her family's expectations mine were kind of slightly at odds they had different parental styles where dad was kind of the happy go lucky if you're if you're happy and you're doing pretty well, you're okay. Um, but hearing that example of being so extreme as to have to turn off the light and and hide hide that you want to be studying, yeah, like that makes me feel quite sad for the for the child. Um, yeah. But it sounds like she kind of figured it out in in having a backbone. I, I think I think that's the thing through all of it is at some point figuring out that we can trust what we want and the fact that she knew even back then that having to turn the light off didn't mean that she had to turn the light off in her brain and think that studying or getting her degree and and moving on from there was a bad idea but that she actually stuck with it. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting process isn't it? We are so shaped by our the expect expectations of our parents as children because really they are the main people that we know through our, in our in our lives their primary influence but at a certain point you kind of need to start to break away from those expectations and get to know yourself like you say Linda for you when did that begin to happen I reckon a few years ago yeah quite I recent. Actually, Quite recent. I reckon that up until, really probably until I quit Triple J almost or just before that, which was around 2018, 2019, mm. I think before that I've I've been on kind of that sort of autopilot of productivity my whole life. Um, so even though there's been little seeds of, okay, I can trust myself, I can take these risks, I can pursue things that I want and I can break away from my parents and I can live overseas. And, I, you know, in the book I talk about how I lived in London in my 20s and then I came back to Australia. I think the, the through line is that I still had this sense of uh, people pleasing and pleasing my parents' expectations that were even in a sense like subtly guiding me throughout it. And it's been really not until my sort of mid-30s that I've become much more conscious of what that is and striking the balance between I love these people, I will be loyal to them and I will always want to do them proud. But the best way of doing that 
is making myself happy. Have you ever had an open conversation with your mum about her expectations? Truly, it's been through this book. Really? Yeah. If I hadn't have gone through the process of digging deep and writing this book, this would this level of internal clarity and understanding would not have happened. Fascinating. Let's take another call from Boris in Hobart. Welcome to Life Matters, Boris. Tell us about your story of parental expectations. Oh, hello, Beverly. How are you? Um, yes, I grew up uh, in Western Australia uh, from a migrant family. My parents are German and um, they came out in the early 60s and yeah, so I, I grew up in a strict religious um, denomination, cult you, would, you may say, um, but the expectations of the family towards the children as being good children you know, upright, um, God-fearing children. And then the, the sort of the ramifications of that um, was quite quite an interesting traumatic journey over the years. And where are I'm you... I'm no longer in that church. Where are you at now, Boris? How have you processed, processed all that? Um, it's taken probably a 20... 20 sort of year journey, but probably in the last 10 years, the process of decoupling yourself from all the expectations of parenthood and religion. And I think um, a, a lot of people would underestimate, well, the, the underestimation of the religious aspect of growing up in a, in a home where your parents um, have to be the, the better the parent you are and the, and the more that your children are doing well, the, the more proud they, they are in, in the eyes of, the, um, of their own small society. Um, and the pressure on that, I remember as an 18-year-old saying to my father, why do you stand up at Bible class on a Wednesday night and pontificate about how good a parent you are and how proud you are of your children and, and, and what you... Um, what, what the expectations are underlying, I said, you're, you're making, it's very embarrassing to hear you talk like that, Dad. I just find it, I find there's so much of an expectation on my own shoulders. That sounds really difficult, Boris. Thank you so much for calling in and sharing. We're going to sneak in one final call from Jenny in Sydney. Welcome to Life Matters, Jenny. We've got about two minutes left. Uh, let's hear quickly your story and reflection on parental expectations. Yeah, so when I was growing up, my parents both left school when, you know, when they were younger, at 14 and 16, so their expectation of education was very low. Um, in the 80s, I was at high school, they wanted me to kind of drop out when I was 16 and just do a certificate, but I wanted to do my HSC and I really fought to stay at school, but at the same time, as I did my HSC, I had to go to typing college because my mum was convinced I would be a secretary. Um, so yeah, I had to kind of do both. Um, I did go on and get a degree. I did go on to actually teach at university. Um, so their expectations were a little bit different after that. But I guess what's interesting as a parent mm. now, after fighting for education, I really expected, I guess, that my two children would get degrees. And they both had sort of different sort of health issues and things that meant that they missed a lot of school and they weren't necessarily academic and, and they've found their own paths, which is great, and that is the main thing. But I think 
there was in my mind that I fought for education and now I had that expectation that I've flipped this journey and I want to want to kind of keep the flip and ensure my kids had a degree um, and they've got diplomas and they've got other qualifications but yeah and I'm, I'm quite happy now but I think there was a certain amount of acceptance around that. Thank you so much, Jenny, for your call. Linda, final word to you. I mean, mm. thinking about parental expectations and, you know, you did struggle with them when you were younger. Thinking back now, what do you appreciate about the expectations that your parents put on you? I appreciate that it showed a level of unconditional love that I would never get from anyone else. Like, it all as as overbearing or as, you know, heavy as it might seem at times, but there was a level of love there and a level of wanting me to have a good life that I kind of can't fault. I'm like, I know you just love me so much. That's their love and language, right? That's their the love language. And and now as an adult being able to talk to them about these things, there's such a level of acceptance that feels like we're sitting in the right place that we should be. Linda Mariano, thank you so much for hanging out with us on Life Matters this morning and talking about parental expectations. It's been a lot of fun and really insightful as well. Oh, Beverly, you're a dream. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Linda's book is Love Language, a memoir of family, music and pasta. It's out now. And we are on to the Too Hard Basket. It's a favour that's turned into a storage nightmare. Hi, it's Meredith Lake from Soul Search. Did you know that globally 84% of people affiliate with a religion? So how do religious ideas and practices connect us to our surroundings, to the places we love, to the wider community of life? How do the landscapes we love ground and shape our spiritual lives? Explore Sacred Landscapes, a new series on Soul Search, Sunday 6pm on RN or anytime on the ABC Listen app. Got an issue you just can't fix? On the fence about what direction you should take? Been wrestling with a situation that's out of control? Let's take it out of the too hard basket. Pauline stepped up to help and ended up becoming caretaker to someone else's belongings. Now she needs our help. I'm calling on experienced two hard basketeers, Denise Erickson and Tito Ambio, for their wise counsel. Welcome back to both of you. Thank you, Beverly. Thanks, Bev. Hi. Hi. So sometimes when we do someone a favor, we end up with a lot more than we bargained for. Denise, have you ever done a good deed only to be left holding the bag or the boxes? Look, I haven't because it's a deep fear for me. I'm not great with clutter. I'm a total, um, I'm a total chucker-outer. So Pauline's dilemma here makes me feel, oh, my gosh, and particularly because there's so many layers to it. Yeah, okay, hold that thought. Let's hear what Tito has to say, and then we'll dive into the meat of the problem. Well, this is something that I'm always a little bit scared about be- uh, to talk about because this is something that I have done to a friend. <laughs> so, you have been the <laughs> because person I am, I am one to of those burden people them. Who is this, you know, I love collecting stuff. And um, yeah, once a friend had to yeah take care of my stuff while okay, I was away. Okay, well, and, we're yeah. going to find out how that worked out, I'm sure, in the process <laughs> of this dilemma. Let's get to what Pauline has shared with us. Pauline writes, My cousin was in the process of moving house many hours away when her husband passed away. 
She's now in the new house, and as I live right near their old house, I wanted to step in and help them out during this tough time. I took charge of a lot of things that had been left behind. I organized professional cleaning and generally saw to getting it into condition for handing over to the new owner. I was happy to do all these things and don't care any feeling of entitlement because of them. They are done in friendship. I took their leftover belongings to my place and sorted them into garbage, which went to the tip, useful stuff, which I started to feed through op shops. Then I got a text from my cousin, who is now a widow, thanking me for looking after her things and vaguely indicating that she would pick them up sometime. I now have several cubic meters of clothes, toys, and household goods, plus a 1.5 meter high pile of magazines. Not the weekly ones with puzzles, but specialist glossy $15 ones. I asked for help from a mutual relative, but he simply asked her what she wanted done, and she again said that she will pick them up Sometime, it's important to me to stay on good terms with her because she's family. This is not a relationship that I will trash. I was happy to help in a time of crisis, but I need to free myself from these things. Help. Yeah, help indeed. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of stuff. 1.5 meter high pile of $15 (laughs) glossy magazines. I mean, look, I have some suggestions, but I get that you want to keep that relationship sweet. Okay, (laughs) Denise, what aspects of this dilemma are jumping out at you? Look, I think her cousin is going through a hell of a time with losing her husband like that. So I think there's a number of layers here about why she's dilly-dallying about picking things up. I picked up that the house that they used to live in is very near to Pauline. So I guess revisiting that, I guess trauma of a sudden death is probably a major factor in stopping her cousin. And I totally get that, but equally, I absolutely get that Pauline wants her space back. And like I said, that's my horror scenario. So I think that, you know, there's a couple of things she could do, but um, she has to do something. And, I mean, I thought, you know, given the the state, um, I'm imagining all this, of course. I mean, you know, I'm only theorising, but maybe she could offer to deliver the I know that's not easy ship them and then basically go up to her cousin's house when they arrive and the two of them sort through it together yes a lot of people have suggested similar things Denise Tito let me get to your story because you have been the person on the other (laughs) end you have been Pauline's cousin what happened there yeah, well, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I travel a bit, so I was um, so yeah. But I also like to collect things. I, at one point, I was collecting um, puppets because I okay. love those little um, yeah puppets. And then I had yeah, I had a few boxes of them. And I was going to Europe, and yeah, I asked a friend to take care of my puppets. And um, after a few years, a few finally, years, how many years? <laughs> Come on, three Come years. On. Three um, years. How many puppets we're we talking about? Uh, it, 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 three, three kind of small boxes. You know, so it's not huge. It's not a huge oh, okay. amount of things. All but right, I think okay. I think one of the things that really jumped out at me, I think there are two what things. What did they do with your puppets? Out. Hang on. What did they do with your puppets? Uh, they kept it. They're good friends. Okay. You know? so, so, but I, I I had to. Yeah. I think I think one of the things about this is sometimes. You know, like if for me now, I can see clearly that yeah, there were puppets. I loved them, but also I was dealing with a lot of other things in life. Um, it was too hard and. 
they started to become just just stuff, you know, the, the way my friends and I were talking about it. You know, Tito, when, when are you going to get your stuff yeah. instead of something that's specific and has a story behind it? And I think that is one of the things that I that jumped the out at me with The idea of dilemma. the things versus the actual thing of the things. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes the idea of the thing gets kind of too big or in some kinds it gets minimized. Yeah. Really interesting. So, Denise, what's the grace period here into taking account the cousin's husband's death and trauma and grieving? Oh, How long should I Pauline think- hang on? to them i think the time's up for yeah. pauline's yeah absolutely and i mean i think it's the way i would probably approach it you know you've just reminded me i actually did store some stuff at a friend's house once and their house burnt down so i lost a lot anyway and so i was actually not traumatized at all because i obviously didn't need it but to get back to pauline i would be saying look she she's got to be clear that she actually does need the space back and that she's worrying about the deterioration of the items she's got. So she wants to make sure there's nothing special or valuable. So she should put a very clear time frame on it. And if she, you know, the shipping them might work or otherwise, the other idea I had was perhaps inviting her um, cousin to stay and host a weekend to sort of celebrate the um, husband who's died and go through the stuff and then help her to take the, you know, organise shipping back. Mm. But I think she needs to be very clear that she's done her best, but she actually needs the space back. Well, I think we should be... Yeah, let's be very clear. Pauline, in describing what she's done for her cousin, has already done a huge amount of help and work and should really, you know, look at that and think, yeah, I have done a lot. But Tito, Pauline says she doesn't want to trash this relationship with her cousin. But shouldn't maintaining good relationships be a mutual act? I mean, isn't Pauline's cousin also responsible here in keeping that relationship nice and sweet? Yeah, but I think that that is a beautiful sentiment to have, um, you know, relationship, friends, etc. But I think, you know, I didn't grow up here. Right? I grew up in Indonesia where I think uh, we also think about friendship in a, in, in a different way. And I think in Indonesia, it's more communal. Um, you know, if this were to happen in Indonesia, people would share the burden a little bit more. So mm-hmm. I think this is, some, this is something that I say to my friends in Melbourne quite a lot. Build a village, build a village with your friends, uh, because when something like this happens, you can then share the burden. And so I think, yeah, I agree uh, with Denise that, you know, we need to have, uh, Pauline needs to have a clear time frame. But also I think, yeah, we, we need to treat this as a problem, not only a problem about the stuff, but a problem. But I think the other thing that jumped out at me is, you know, we, in Australia, in many Western countries, we don't know how to talk about death very well. We don't, um, you know, there is this concept called death competency, um, which is, you know, kind of sociologists came up with this and to talk about how, yeah, people talk about death. And I think in Australia, we just don't know how to do this. And I think there's a big part of it. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously some kind of, the cousin has vaguely indicated she will, but is kind of not locking down a date. So Mm. I get the sense that there is a bit of avoidance happening there. I wonder if there's a solution in Pauline's letter. She mentions there's a mutual relative, like you said, Tito, maybe this 1.5 meter high pile of magazines could be distributed for safekeeping among a network of relatives. Same with the several cubic meters of clothes and toys. Is that a a decent option, at least in in the short term, Denise, to minimize the amount that Pauline herself is taking care of? Look, I like that in principle, and I love the idea of community and building a village. However, you're really just distributing an issue that needs to be sorted and with compassion and kindness. Now, of course, if that doesn't work, 
The other thing I would probably do, and I don't know what Pauline's financial circumstances are, of course, but I'd try and find some cheap storage and just pop it all in there. If it's really upsetting her, um, I, I would just try and find a way to get... Look, the cousin or the, the, the mutual relative she contacted didn't seem to be very Not much overly engaged. helpful, no. No, so I can't imagine they'd think it was a great idea to take half the magazines and pop them at their house. But maybe they could be engaged in helping to, you know, take the stuff to Pauline's cousin or have a weekend where they all came together to help us sort it out. Maybe you have a family gathering around the sorting out. Because when my mum died, we used that opportunity to celebrate her life. Yeah. And all, all of the family were there and we talked about things as we got rid of them. And it was a really healing process. Because in New Zealand, the Māori culture is very much around what Tito's saying and that sort of communal um, approach to grief. And, mm. and I, it worked a treat. So, Tito, we've just got a little bit of time left. What is, if you were role-playing this situation and uh, you can kind of inhabit Pauline and give her the the, the power, the strength to confront her cousin, confront, address it with her cousin, uh, what would you say, what would you do? I think what I would do is I would gather a few friends, people who might want to be able to, uh, might want to help as well. And I think, yeah, going back to this thing that we talked about before, you know, treat these things not as just stuff, but start to go, okay, what are the stories behind Behind all of these things and be really specific you know with the magazines what are the stories behind the magazines where can they go how can this story end with a magazine how can the story end with the clothes how can the story end with so I think it's that telling of stories behind the objects that might help uh, with clarifying in, instead of just this becoming just a cubic meters of stuff. Yes. This is this are objects with yeah. stories. Well, I want to thank you both for your very thoughtful uh, reflections. And Pauline, if you're listening, I do hope this helps. Denise Erickson is a co-founder of Media Mentors Australia. And, and Tito Ambio is an RMIT journalism lecturer, columnist, and digital culture PhD researcher. What an <laughs> overachiever. Uh, if you have a dilemma in your too hard basket, let us help you solve it. You can write it up and send it to lifematters at abc.net net.au. One text coming through from someone who has lost someone. They text in, having gone through a similar experience of the sudden loss of my husband, reading these replies gives me anxiety. Your cousin is not ready to deal with this yet. That's a very important point. Mm. And Nicole says, it's only a relationship worth having if the care runs both ways. She probably didn't see you doing all this work. Often, people who are suffering become extremely self-absorbed and that is only okay for a short time period. Tell her you need the items moved by a set date on that date if no arrangements have been made send the items to her place we've got some tough customers on the life matters facebook page laying down the law about these possessions thank you so much for all of the messages and 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 all the ways that you've engaged with life matters uh, in this episode please keep them coming we love to see the messages i love to talk to you remember you can follow life matters on the abc listen app and if you have a dilemma in your too hard basket and you want us to discuss it maybe even help solve it for you Write it up and send it to lifematters at abc.net.au. That's lifematters at abc.net.au. A huge thank you to the Life Matters team. This show would not run without producers Beck Zajak, Lisa Needham, Michelle Weeks, Nat Tenchich, Beth Atkinson Quinton, Sky Kirkham, and our acting executive producer, Haley Crane. Our audio engineer is Tim James. I'm Beverly Wang. Hilary Harper is with you for Monday. I will catch you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.